You are listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit jointheventure.com or facebook.com slash jointheventure. We hope you enjoy. Two words. Fantasy football. Now, either you have two responses to that, those two words. Your words are either yeah or ah. Oh. <laughs> because fantasy football is huge. How's your fantasy football team doing right now? Anybody all right? Anybody like, nah. Yeah, uh, Andrew Luck is my quarterback, and I can't find anybody else, and apparently he can't get his shoulder to connect the rest of his body just right. So that ain't happening for me right now. Uh, you know, there, those of you who are in the f- fantasy football, let me tell you kind of a little bit what fantasy football is all about. Th- this is basically a summary of fantasy football. Uh, you get a group of non-football players, okay, and they collect a virtual football team that actually is represented in the real football world. And then each week, uh, two of those fantasy virtual football team owners will play against each other, and their scoring is determined what actually happens in the real football game. You with us? Is it clear as mud? That's what happens in real fantasy football, uh, and, and, uh, and, and it, it's, it's huge right now. Forbes magazine has some stats about fantasy football. It estimates that 33 million people play each year. Interestingly, uh, 6.4 million of those are female, and so ladies, holding it strong, and that number's growing. Uh, here's another one. A recent study found that the average fantasy player spends about three hours a week managing their team. That's not all. About nine hours a week doing research and watching games. Now, it is estimated that approximately 30% of fantasy owners manage their teams during work hours. And when you add that all together, I don't know who does this math. It's a genius beyond my own. About $6.5 million are lost each year in businesses because of people playing fantasy football. It's amazing. So why is fantasy such a big deal? Why don't business owners be like, no more fantasy football? Well, one, because they've got a team. And and two, because it's so popular, it's so huge, it's undeniable. Uh, I believe that football fans um, love fantasy football for, for one simple reason. Because as a fantasy football owner, you get to be a more active participant in football. You know what I mean? Like you get to pay attention to the games and like what happens in the game actually matters to you in some way. Like it or not, football is a major social pastime in America. Quickly and maybe already becoming the number one game that people look at in in our nation. And uh, to think that hundreds and thousands of people flock to stadiums, whether it's for high school games, college games, or professional games, every weekend is unbelievable. Especially when you consider what they're there to do. We're there to watch grown men who are wearing pads and spandex tackle each other for three hours. That's the goal of football, right? Like, woo, yeah, sign me up for that game. I got the 50-yard line. You know, but that's what we're excited about, right? We spend lots of money on this. Not only that, what's even more unbelievable is how much money these guys make. Professional football players making millions and millions of dollars. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable that you could have your entire college career paid for, your education paid for by this game of football. It's, it's unbelievable. But you know what? It might be unbelievable, but it's undeniable. It's undeniable. It's everywhere. We used to live in Greenville, North Carolina, home of the ECU Pirates. Yeah, can I try something? I'm going to try it. I need you to stick with me. So if you're a Pirates fan, wake up. Maybe the yawn video got you going. Listen to this. I need to try this. Purple. Purple. 
Yeah, that's, that's crazy people in Greenville, man. ECU Pirates, you yell purple, and other people yell gold. It happens at Walmart. It happens in parks. It happens in parking lots. Purple! Yeah, all day long. I could keep these people going. Football is unbelievable, but it's undeniable. It's everywhere. You don't believe me? Live in Greenville, North Carolina on football weekend when it's a Saturday game, and you just try to go to Food Lion. You just try. Try to get there in a reasonable amount of time. Football's undeniable. It's a huge part of our culture, and I think that one reason that it's undeniable is because everyone wants to be part of the game. Even if you're not really a big fan of football, if you live in a football town like Greenville or even bigger football cities than that, You'll notice that the businesses get involved. They change their logos to match the colors of the team. Like on game day, they got specials and free donuts and anything to get people in the store. Why? Because they want to use the game to their advantage. But I think it's this, this idea that we want to get involved in the action. We want to be a tangible part of what's happening. I start out talking about football, fantasy football, and the unbelievable yet undeniable nature of it all. Because we're in this series called Rethink Social. And over the course of the last uh, about a month, we've been talking about some relationships in our life that are really important. Things like marriage, things like friendship, uh, things like our work relationships. And the whole goal is to see what would happen if we would allow God to transform these relationships. And I hope it's been good for your, your marriage, for your workplace. I got a call from a few people last week after we talked about work just saying, man, I, I have just been struggling at work. And it's so awesome to remember that God's got a mission for me. And it's not just to do the widget thing that I'm doing at my job, but that God can use me in my workplace. I hope that it's been helpful. And uh, there are two reasons, though, why I bring up football. One, because quite honestly, it's hard to keep dudes' attention in church. Just It's historically true. I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me. Like, while I'm preaching sometimes, like, I don't even pay attention to me. I'm just like, what's going on? And the other reason is because I think there's a parallel to what's happening in the football world and to what's happening in today's relationship that we're going to discuss. See, God has been up to some amazing things in our world. He created the place, right? And that was pretty awesome of him. Thank you, God. And then he has this amazing history that's laid out. If you look in the Old Testament of the Bible, you can see how God has interacted in history and made a difference in the world so that he could eventually come and be a part of the world, and that's Jesus. The coolest thing that I've seen uh, in this whole story of God is that over and over and over again, God invites us, humans, to be active participants in what he's up to. All throughout history. That's what he does. And it hasn't changed. In fact, there's a thing that God's up to right now that is, it, it, is one of the biggest things on the planet. And it is called the church. And it is God's invitation for us humans to be actively involved in what he's up to in the world. And in a much more active and, and realistic way than even fantasy football can compare to what's going on in the real football world. Today as we talk about the church, I think it's important to kind of go back in history a little bit and figure out where the church came from and how does it even exist. Uh, I appreciate there are a lot of you in the room right now who didn't grow up in church. And maybe uh, you're here for the first time today and you're like, I'm not really sure what's going on. Uh, there are so many churches in town, I don't even know where to start. Well, this is a good day to be here because what I want to do is kind of take us back to the very beginning of church and bring us up to date. It'll only take a few minutes. The church actually began just shortly after Jesus, who was God, who came in the flesh, okay, that's Jesus, and he came to show the world the way back to Jesus, and so he gives to, to God, and so he gives his, his life as a sacrifice to pay the price for mankind's sin, that's Jesus in a nutshell, and so after he does that great act, and he raises from the dead, he then ascends and goes back into heaven, and he says, I'm going to come back one day 
to collect all the people in the world who have been faithful to me. So go out and tell people about me. And it's not long after that, just a little less than two months later, the church begins. It's an amazing day. You should read about it. It's in the book of Acts, chapter 2. God's spirit moves among human beings in a way like never before, and the church begins. That's kind of the genesis of the church. Uh, the, the apostles, who were Jesus' closest followers, and Jesus appointed them, these, these, these guys that were the apostles, they become the leaders of the church. And what they begin to do is to spread the word of God throughout the world. All right, They start out in this area around Jerusalem, but then they begin to go all over what is now the Mediterranean region, and they even move into Asia, and they go down into Africa, and they're all up in Europe, and they're slowly moving through, and there's a couple of them more prominent than others, people like Peter, and Paul, and John, and these might be people that you either thought were part of a rock band in the 70s, or they were from the Bible, and so as these people move along, they, they start to assemble people, and they start to uh, mobilize people around this idea, this is the idea, God loves us. He came to the earth to show us that he loves us. He gave his life for us and he defeated death so that we could live. That is the mobilizing mission of the church, is to tell people that. God loves us and, he's give, and the people who believe in that can be reconnected with God. It's a beautiful, simple message. And people began to travel the globe telling people about that. Now, in the early days, they didn't call themselves the church in the early days, they, they, uh, people refer to them, they sometimes refer to themselves as the way. We see that, like we're the way to God. That's a pretty cool name. Uh, even modern Christians sometimes have, have tried to use that. Uh, another word that's pretty cool that people, they use, they, they said this phrase, it was meant to be kind of derogatory. They said, look at those Christians. You recognize that word? Yeah. It means little Christ. <laughs> Just a little Christ, you know. Look at those Christians, but the Christians were like, all right, yeah, we'll go with that. That sounds good. So it stuck, and so they became known as Christians, but they never called themselves the church. Actually, the word that's used all throughout the New Testament of the Bible is this word. It's a Greek word. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. The word is ekklesia. Can you say that? Say ekklesia. You just got a Greek lesson. Awesome. And this is what it means. It means an assembly of people. People coming together and the idea that they're together around a common idea, a common motive. They want to get something done. So they're the assembly. And so looking throughout the whole New Testament, when you see the word church translated in our English Bibles, you need to actually know that that word comes from the word ecclesia. And what it meant was the assembly. It was the people who had gathered together to mobilize, to be on mission, and to be united around this idea that God loves us. He came and died for us, and if we believe in that, we can go to heaven, tell the world, Ecclesia. So in the beginning, the Ecclesia was a movement of people. It was a movement. Now, for the first 300 years of the church, uh, I got to tell you, these were hard times for the church. The Roman Empire was at some of its prime times. And for the first 300 years of the church, it was essentially illegal to practice religion that didn't acknowledge the Caesar of Rome as a god. Now, if you were willing to accept him among a pantheon of gods, then fine. But if you were someone like a Christian who came in and said, uh, no, Caesar's not God, that wasn't legal because of the new religion. There were some other ex religions that already existed. For example, Judaism already had existed, but you can't create new religions. And so legally, the, the church or the Christians were just seen as a sect of Judaism for a long time. They couldn't openly talk about their views on the Caesar. They couldn't talk about uh, the way they felt about God because it was illegal. And this led to lots and lots of persecutions. Because if you know many Christians who really believe the message of Jesus, they're not good at keeping their mouth shut about their faith. 
persecution, persecution, persecution. A word that you've got to know is the word martyr. You know the word martyr? I mean, maybe you've heard it. Essentially, the word martyr, it means someone who dies because of their faith. They give their life in, in favor of standing up for their faith. This is the first 300 years of the church. You know what? This movement of people, this assembly, i got to tell you something about it. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable because you would think that something that was so persecuted and so highly uh, scorned by the public would fizzle out and die. But it didn't. Over the course of that 300 years, the Christian movement boomed. The ecclesia, the assembly, continued to grow and grow and grow. And the more the government tried to oppress it, the more the believers said, this is so true. We have got to tell someone. We have got to tell someone about the love of God. And it grew and it grew and it grew and it grew. First 300 years of the church. It's unbelievable. But you know what else? It's undeniable. You can look back into history and you can see that. You can see the impact of Christian communities around the world as they begin to spring up and change culture and change lives and change ideology and change worldviews. That's the first 300 years of the church in a nutshell. Now, uh, in, in 313 AD, Constantine is the emperor of Rome. And the emperor of Rome does this, uh, this incredible thing here in 313. All right, this is Constantine. He legalizes freedom of religion. And shortly thereafter, Constantine also declares, by the way, I'm a Christian. This changes the game completely for Christians. Suddenly, not only is it not only illegal to be a Christian, it's fashionable. People become Christians because, well, after all, it's, I mean, the emperor is a Christian, so let's join in, and, and he's highly encouraging that. And so some things happen. See, before, uh, before the, uh, the, the conversion of Constantine, one thing that Christians often would do is that they would gather together, and they would celebrate the anniversary of the death of a martyr. If someone had given their life for their faith, they might go near the place of that grave or the place where the person formerly lived, and they would have, they'd have a meal, or they'd have a little party. And it would often be a small gathering, and they'd pray to God, and they'd thank God for this opportunity to witness that person's faith, and it was a big thing. With the, the popularity of, of Christianity and the ecclesia through Constantine, now Christians had influence, they had money, and they were able to do things publicly. So they started doing something pretty interesting. They started building buildings called basilicas. It's a Latin word for a gathering place, a building. So they built these basilicas around what is, you know, Europe today. And they built these places, and the buildings were meant to represent and uh, kind, of, kind of memorialize the martyrs. That's why you often see basilicas named St. James, Basilica, because it was named to memorialize the martyrs that, that died near that region. And then the people would gather there in large numbers to celebrate that martyr's life. Now, this change redefined the ecclesia. Because people stopped referring to the church as the ecclesia, the assembly, and they started referring to it as something else. They started referring to it as maybe going to the basilica, going to the place doing the thing. And as that word shifted, the mindset shifted. Because as uh, Christianity became more prominent and affluent, people began to celebrate their faith and their religion in more ceremonial ways. When you've got a large group of people, it's hard to get them all a chance to talk, and so often someone would take charge. And they would borrow customs from the imperial cult, which is the idea of worshiping the emperor, or borrow customs from former pagan practices where to worship the person in charge would wear 
ornate robes and ornament themselves. And they, and they would light candles and burn incense. And these practices, they, in well good meaning, I'm sure, came together and said, let's celebrate Jesus. Let's celebrate the lives of these martyrs. Let's celebrate what we've done as a, as a group here. And, but it shifted from the ecclesia, a group of people gathered around a mission to a group of spectators who would come and gather to spectate, to view something happening on a stage. These buildings became the site of these elaborate weekly ordeals. Again, not throwing rocks at what happened in the past, but that's kind of where that comes from. Now eventually as the church uh, grows, as, as the assembly, the people that meet at the Basilica, the Christians grow, uh, it becomes very prominent in Germany, and the, the, the area that's modern day Germany, and um, they begin to use a different word for Basilica, because they weren't speaking Latin, they started to call these buildings the, the Kirika, now if you're a German major from college, sorry I just butchered the language that you love, but the Kirika, and, and actually uh, as that word kind of translates to modern day German, that word was more like Kirk, the word Kirk means a house of worship. It's actually the same word that they would use to refer to other houses of worship, you know, for whatever religion you were part of. This is a house of worship for the Christians. Kirk, Kirk. You translate into English, what does it sound like? Church. And it's stuck. Now, the movement that was about an assembly of people mobilized on a mission has shifted and evolved into a spectator sport. Where people are about going to the kirk and being part of a ceremony and an event. Now, this church history lesson is almost called up, okay? So we're almost there. Christians who were reading the Bible and seeing the history of the church, they, they saw what was happening and the shift of the culture. And, and they were like, I don't think that's where we really want to go with that. And so if you know any church history or really a lot of world history, you'll see that there were a lot of movements that sprung out of this. Because, like I said, I am not here to throw stones at the church. Far be it from me uh, to do that. The, the Bible calls... Uh, I, I was thinking one time, as a side note, I was thinking one time it would be really fun to do this series um, called Don't Call My Wife Ugly. I think that would be a pretty funny series to do. Uh, because... Jesus says that he is like the groom and the church is his wife. And uh, you know that thing, like you, you got your little sister and everybody, you, you know, you can pick on your little sister. You can push her down, but nobody else better push her down. So I was like, what if we had a series called Don't Call My Wife Ugly? And it was about like, don't throw stones at the church. Let's just see what we can do to be the church. But anyway, uh, <laughs> side note, that's for the other series that might happen another day. As, as church history progresses, there are church leaders who just say, I think we should change some things. For example, there were some who were part of this movement called the Reformation Movement. You familiar with that? A lot of great uh, leaders came through that and really began to reform the Reformation, the reform the ideas of the church because they wanted to come back to something that was a little more um, historically accurate and, and more importantly, biblical. Uh, in fact, there have been lots of movements like that. Uh, personally, and here at Venture Church, uh, we're part of a movement of churches called the Restoration Movement. You might not even know that, but that's kind of my background and my history and a lot of the leadership that kind came in as a part of this at the beginning and the restoration movement is another movement of churches that basically has said let's re restore the church to some of the more uh the more biblical principles that we see the early church practice in the first century and so there's lots of these movements uh, that have gone on and there are a lot of things that church may have become uh to you or to culture but as we look at the bible today what i'd like to do is rethink church and say what does the bible say and what did the early Christians practice 
when it came to church. You did good on that history lesson. It's awesome. It'll be on at 7 o'clock on the History Channel. As we rethink church today, I want to issue a challenge to us. Uh, my challenge to us is let's get in the game. Let's get in the game. The church was never intended to be a spectator sport. It was never intended to be about a place or an event. It was intended to be about a group of people assembled, mobilized around a mission, which is to tell people about the love of God. And one of my favorite passages that kind of describes and talks about the church is from the book of 1 Peter. We looked at the uh, second half of it last week while we were talking about work. And if you remember, he says uh, that you are a, royally, a holy priesthood, a royal nation, a chosen people, God's special possession, and that you were called out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Do you remember that last week? And that was like, that's our calling. We were called out of darkness to share the light of Jesus. We're going to f- rewind just a few verses and look in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, and just see how Peter describes the church. He says this. You, he's talking to Christians, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let's just leave that verse on the screen and let that sink in. Have you ever seen a human pyramid? You know a human pyramid like cheerleaders do it or maybe like uh, some frat boys at a tailgate party who have had a few too many uh, beverages and like... That's a good idea. Um, A human pyramid, uh, I I like this imagery of a human pyramid when you you lay it over this verse. Because it says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. This instruction is to the church, and it says this. Back when they called themselves the ecclesia, it was like they didn't have a building. I mean, some people sold their buildings to support the work of the church. Other people did have nice houses, and they would meet there. But it wasn't about property. In fact, this instruction is to the people. It says, do you realize that each one of you are like stones in a living building? Think about that human pyramid. The human pyramid, one person is weak or or, or starts to shake or or sneezes or something, and everyone around them is affected by that. In fact, the whole pyramid could come tumbling down because we rely on each other in that setting. And the same thing is true if someone in this pyramid is is strong. You can lean on them. You want them to be in the base and create some stability. And so... Very, in a very real way, the church is like this living wall. Each person being a living stone. I love that it says we are a part of a spiritual building. It's like a new temple. It's like a place where we can gather together and right here our walls are kind of seated. <laughs> and if you leave, we send some of our wall over, over to Leland and some of you go live in La Ogden and some of you go down, uh, down in Monkey Junction. But the idea is each one of us carries a piece of this new temple with us, this new place of worship. The church, the ecclesia, we are that living building. We are the people who get to serve as, let's look back at verse 5, we get to serve as a holy priesthood. See, in the old temple, there were priests, and they, they, they lived there. This is the Old Testament. They, they lived near the temple, and they worked in the temple, and that's where people came to offer sacrifices to God. We talked last week. Do you remember what uh, a good definition for a priest is? Someone who builds a bridge between man and God. It's a good definition for a priest. Someone who builds a bridge between, or bridges the distance between man and God. And look what Peter calls us, the church. Each person who is a Christian and a living stone in the spiritual building, he says that you are spiritual priesthood, a holy priesthood. 
You know, God doesn't say anything about some sort of hierarchy of command. I mean, there is church leadership. You, you, you hear about elders in the church, and there are people who are evangelists and teachers. But it's not like some people are all powerful and all in charge, and the rest of us are scrubs. That's not how it works. Especially when it comes to being able to bridge the gap between man and God. Each one of us gets that opportunity. You can bridge the gap all by yourself. You don't have to bring them to some special person. It's your neighbor. His name is Jim. Jim, let me tell you what God has done in my life. Boom. You just became a priest. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It's a crazy metaphor. Uh, I like to put skin on metaphors because this is a weird kind of creepy thing. Like, oh, we're a spiritual building. We're like this big human pyramid. I don't know if that like, puts a weird thought in your mind. I don't want to stack on top of most of you, okay? Um, I did say most. You can work out the details. Um, I want to put a more specific uh, definition and some skin on, on this metaphor. In Romans chapter 12, Paul talks about the same idea, but he gives it kind of a different metaphor. And he calls it not a building, but a body. And I love the idea as the church is a body. Romans 12, starting at verse 4, it says this, For just as each of us has one body with many members, these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, we form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophecy, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, then do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. One of the word pictures that the Bible gives of the church is this body. And I love that first sentence. It's like we are many members, but we're all part of the same body. Paul's writing to this church and he explains, just like our physical bodies have many parts, each part has a job. And, and, and there's another passage that Paul writes. He says, you get your foot can't be like, man, I'm a foot. I wish I was an ear. And your ear's like, um, no, that's, that's kind of my job. And by the way, ears wouldn't be good for walking on. And some people, you know, might, might in the body of Christ be uh, the eyes that are looking out and seeing things, or the hands that are more likely to serve. And I don't think it's a, a one-for-one comparison. Like, I don't think that there's literally, some of you are just spleens and we're not really sure what to do with you but now that's not a one-for-one one comparison but it's another metaphor but it gives us the idea that each one of us has a role and then he puts some skin on it some of you should be teachers some of you should be encouragers some of you should be servants and the cool thing about this is this is not an exhaustive list of all the body parts of the body of Christ I believe that when a person comes to faith in Jesus when they say, I want to live for Jesus, and, and, they, and then they do what the Bible commands, and they get baptized, I believe that in that moment in baptism, the Bible teaches that we can come into contact with the blood of Jesus, and we receive the forgiveness of our sins, we get the Holy Spirit in our life, and this, this whole big thing happens, and all in there somewhere. And at that moment, you become part of the body of Christ. Not this little body, and not just a church across the road or one across the street, but in the world. And each one of us gets this unique place that we can serve in the body. There are extensive surveys and studies and books that you could check into and, and read. And they talk about what are called spiritual giftedness uh, or spiritual gifts, ways that you can use God's power in your life, his Holy Spirit, to find your specific place in the Bible. And I, I'm a fan of those things. I think it's good. I think you can read into them. But I think that, uh, I think that today I can ask you one simple question, that if you're someone who has said, I'm all in, I'm a God chaser, I'm living for Jesus with my life, that if you could answer this one simple question, you could be on your way to finding your place in that body. And here's the question. How am I uniquely equipped to lead somebody else to Jesus? It might be in what you would perceive as a small way or a large way. 
Like, how am I uniquely equipped? We talked last week about your job. You're in a place that I don't ever go, and you're there. That's one way that you're uniquely equipped to show someone to Jesus, maybe as a parent. Some of you are, are, are full-time stay-at-home parents. And do you realize you have this amazing mission field right in front of you? One, two, three, more kids at your house. That they get to be led to Jesus by you, not just your words, but by your example. Wow. You are unique, uniquely equipped in that way. Maybe it's through a special skill or talent that you have. I, I, you know, it's very prominent when you come to a, a church service and you got a dude on drums and somebody playing keys and killing it. You know, and you got all these things going on and you're like, okay, they can serve God with their talents, but what am I supposed to do? You could bring some chili to the cook-off the day, I'm going to tell you that. <laughs> what is the gift in this that you have that you could use to be a part, not just of leading someone to Jesus, but being part of this greater body that we're all seeking to do that same thing? There's some ways you can contribute on Sunday morning, uh, and, and, I, and I'll briefly highlight that. Kind of one of my big points this morning is that, that we're not about the, the kirk, but we're about the ecclesia, if you follow me. But Sunday morning is an important thing. We do see that in the New Testament. Not Sunday morning, but a weekly gathering. And they get together, and they edify each other, and they teach, and they take communion together, and they pray. And this is a major important part of the body of Christ. And so we do have some roles here on Sunday morning that you could definitely plug into to be a part of the body. And so maybe you do want to be involved in the band or work with the, the, the technical stuff or work with the kids or work as the host team. But another thing I want to put before you is what we, in our, here in our little body, we call it the city team. You know, ways that you can get out and love the city. Through, For example, in just a couple of weeks, it might be next week, we're launching an initiative to uh, collect hand warmers and gloves and scarves, I think what we're doing, for homeless people in our city through Vigilant Hope. And we're going we're gonna to collect those things here, and we're going to try to let Vigilant Hope distribute those, and we're going to try to distribute some. And do you know that by serving with an organization like Vigilant Hope to work with people who are in poverty and in need, you're being part of the body of Christ, not just part of a gathering. And not just a spectator, but an active participant in what God is doing in this world. You know, I've talked a lot about football. And one truth about football, especially if you're a Dallas Cowboys fan this year, is that injury is a real thing. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that moan of chuckle. Um, we've had a rough season, man, and our quarterback is out with a broken collarbone, and our best wide receiver has got like a, what's it, his fifth metatarsal? I think it's just a fancy word for his pinky toe. Uh, it's broken. <laughs> Um, you know, and there's a lot going on with injuries, and, and so uh, I say this occasionally, but a lot of you were there about six months ago when I suffered one of the bigger injuries in my life. I dislocated this shoulder. This shoulder was over here. It's not designed to go there. Injury is part of our bodies, and I like this metaphor of the body because I think it speaks to a part of us. If we are indeed the body of Christ, here's what I know. There, there are a lot of times when we're hurting. We're hurting, and... and um, what if when I dislocated my shoulder, I was like, man, i got to fix that thing. Let me saw it off and get a better look at it. Would it ever heal? No. In order to heal, you've got to be a part of the body. You've got to let the blood of the body flow through you. You've got to let the nutrients of the body come into you. I'm telling you, church is a place where a lot of people who are hurting feel like they need to push it away. I'm hurting right now. I don't want to go to church. I'm hurting right now. I don't want to have to hear about happy stuff right now. I'm hurting right now. I don't want to feel guilty about life. I'm hurting right now this, hurting right now that. Maybe you're someone who's here today and, and you wouldn't even identify yourself as a Christian, but you identify yourself as hurting. Can I tell you something? If you can connect to the body of Christ, healing can happen. Another thing about pain, uh, I did dislocate the shoulder, and for the last couple months I've been kind of in rehab mode. And so it started with like this motion. Uh, 
uh, <laughs> for like a complete pansy because I can't like pull my pants up without crying. It's just crazy. This is real life, right? And, and so now I've got mobility. You see this? I actually tried to swim this summer, and so that was pretty cool. Um, here's the thing I know, though, is when I do something with my shoulder that it's not ready for yet, it lets me know. <laughs> Ow! Stupid. Don't do that. It says that to me. I'm like, don't talk to me that way. I'll saw you off. And here's the thing I know about hurting, too, is often we come into places looking for healing, but nobody knows. Is it possible right now there's someone in the room who's, who's hurting, and you just need to let the body know, ouch, I'm hurting. And maybe you've already reached out once before, and you're like, I didn't get what I needed. Well, my shoulder doesn't give up. <laughs> and, and don't give up. Let someone know that you need, whether it's something spiritual prayer or whether it's something physical, like we're just really hurting financially right now, or whether it's something just emotionally, like I'm, I'm broken right now. And I can't promise you that this room has the answers, but I tell you what, the body of Christ does. And we'll do our best to rally around you. So that's about the body and hurting. As we wrap up, I just got to go here. No body is complete without a head. Well, maybe some like freakish monster from like an alien movie. But no real body that anyone enjoys being a part of is complete without a head. And I want to make something very clear. Um, I I might be the primary teacher at this church, right? And a lot of you look to me as... uh, as, as, as the pastor of the church and, and in many ways the leader. But i got to tell you something. I am not the head of the church. Not even close. Good gracious, y'all don't want me in charge. <laughs> There's only one head of the church, universal. And the Bible says this. We're going to let Paul say it because he says things better than I do. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. As he's teaching on the church, he says this. And he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. So that in everything, he might have supremacy. The head of the church, guys, is not some legal counsel. It's not some loudmouth. I think my body part in the church is probably like loudmouth. Like that's who I am. Jesus is our head. We've got to acknowledge that. And the thing about him being the head is that he is from where everything else flows. The ideas, the purpose, the guidedness, the goal, the mission, everything comes from the head. As a church, we are nothing without Jesus. You realize we are spiritually dead without Jesus? From what I shared with us before, Jesus is the only way that's the path back to life and light. And Jesus has the authority and the power to forgive sins and transform us and make us new and connect us to God. But in doing so, this is so cool. When God reconnects us to God, he hands us an invitation. You know what the invitation is? Get in the game. Get in the game. Come be a part of my body. This assembly of church, of people, rallied around the mission of Jesus to shine light into dark places and to rescue people from the dominion of evil and pull them into a place where God can transform their life. I tell you what, when I look at the church and and what it has done in the world, it is unbelievable. I'm like, man, how does it continue to grow? How, how, how do things continue to happen? It's unbelievable. There's oppression, and I feel like every moment there are people who have agendas to shut down the church. It's unbelievable, but you know what it is also? It's undeniable. And I think that probably a hundred of you could stand up right now and tell you why it's undeniable. Because God has transformed my family. Because God has taken me a broken man who just can't keep his mess straight and give me an opportunity to serve in his kingdom. 
that he's taken some of you who are dads, who didn't even know how to love your wife or your girlfriend or whatever it was when you had children, and, and, he, and he's given you the motivation and the drive to love your kids and be a dad that can show them to God. Life's transformed because of Jesus. It's unbelievable, but it's undeniable. I'm proud to call you guys my church family. It's so awesome to get to share with you. I hope that you will uh, come hang out with us seriously, like not metaphorically, but seriously come hang out with the body of Christ at the park today uh, and, and have chili so that we can begin to interact and let our body uh, come together and connect and, and get to know each other, know each other's story and find out where people are hurting and find out how we can love this city together. You know, unlike fantasy football, this isn't a game. This is real. This is real. It's the power of God to change the world one life at a time. It's the church. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us the opportunity to be your body. Um, <laughs> there's just such a focus on bodies in our world, and, and so many people have self-image issues, and I'm too fat, I'm too skinny, I'm not muscular enough, I need to be on a diet. And it, I wonder if sometimes when you look down at your body, you're like, ooh, really letting that thing go. <laughs> um, but thank you for embracing us anyway and letting us be your hands and your feet and your eyes and your ears and your mouthpiece. And Lord, though, this is really just a, a, a glossing of what the church is. Lord, I pray what it teaches us is that we can't be about an event or a place. We've got to be about a movement. Thank you so much for the movement that centers around Jesus. He's our head. He is our husband. He is our savior. Lord, if there's anybody in the room today who's got questions or doubts about you, maybe there's some real hurting happening. Lord, I pray, pray that we can begin to heal together as we find you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.